Welcome to the first official episode of Tales of Our Sisters. Hi, I am your host, Cynthia Francelon, and first and foremost, I would love to say thank you so much for being here, for joining me on this amazing new venture. Uh, I mean, I, I am at a loss for words at the fact that I am now here with this beautiful product that is near and dear to my heart and that the support has been so overwhelming. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and for listening in. Uh, <laughs> and with that being said, you know, uh, this being the first episode, let's start it off with a confession. This podcast has been in the making for, I want to say, three or four years. I remember having this brilliant idea where I get to sit with other Black women storytellers like myself, and we can just sit and talk about the art and the technique that they developed for themselves, their own personal thing, based on the world that they lived and the adventures that they were on and, and the life that they experienced that helped motivate their imagination to create the stories that they told. And it was such a great idea. I mean, anybody that I told this to, they were just like, yes, and like, you, you should do this. This is fantastic. You know, even in grad school, when I had to create a whole pitch deck about the, like the, the pre-production, production, and post of this podcast, the, the future of it, what it could be. I mean, I did all of the work around it except for the actual work, which was to sit down, plug the mic up, record, and post. The storyteller created a story on why she couldn't create a platform, a space, where we could just be and talk about the ways in which story helps us to do that. Ain't that something? I have had many moments where... I did not allow myself to create something out of the fear that I wasn't good enough to create it. Now, granted, within the three to four years that I wasn't recording the podcast, I was still working around it. I was still creating story. I was still allowing myself to live life and to develop as a storyteller to be who I am today. You know, going to grad school and studying screenwriting um, making my own short films, learning about the production of podcasting, working with a team. There were so many pieces that were still being moved across the board that allowed me to be able to sit right here, right now, where I feel ready and able to give myself to this in a way that I didn't before. And I think about that. I think about the fact that there is this beautiful privilege that I have in, in, in ways that are both good and bad, for lack of better words. There's the privilege of being able to live life even though I may not be fully ready to devote myself to a project or to my art in a way that I really want to. You know, being able to um, participate 
in the presence of whatever it is that life is affording me, thus giving me levels of material that I can utilize later on when I am ready. You know, there's that. But then there's also the the other side where the fact that I don't think I'm ready because of not being perfect, not having the materials, not not being the right person, that's just self-doubt. Self-doubt thinking that it could buy me more time until I'm ready. So when you have those two sides of the coins, like what, what do you do with that? You know, how do you, how do you reckon with those burdens? I think about the ways in which my sheer ability to be in both of those places where I can afford to live my life, to tell my stories and or sit in self-doubt, the way in which there is a privilege to that, a privilege that was not so much afforded to my predecessors, to the Black women storytellers before me who have paved the way for me to be able to tell the stories that I want to tell with as much freedom as I have to tell them. Women, unfortunately, who had to create and create quickly or who who had to utilize the time that they had at that very moment because they did not know when they were going to get it back. And I think to some ways, we never know when we're going to get the time back, right? But we are still afforded the imagination that time really is on our side. That it is at our beck and call whenever we want it. And if there's one thing that is true is that time is going to come and it is going to go. We cannot grab it as if it's an object that we can control. If, if there's one thing to take away from this is that time is uncontrollable. Not too long ago, I was doing research on one of my favorite black woman storytellers, the late Kathleen Collins, filmmaker, author, playwright, uh, professor, editor. I mean, an amazing, amazing, amazing storyteller. And I was doing research and I fell upon this essay that someone wrote. And the essay starts with, with this quote. A large number of black woman writers, both past and present, have gone to early graves. To know their life stories is to be made aware of how death hovers. Their deaths stand as constant reminders that life is not promised, that it is crucial for a writer to respect time. The writer, Stephanie Fields, who is another black woman storyteller and After reading this, I got a chance to read her other pieces, and she's amazing. Her essays are fantastic. But she starts off this particular essay addressing the feelings that she experiences when listening to Solange's album, A Seat at the Table. Now, this is a piece of work that we know and love for the ways in which it carries its sorrow, its identity, its pain, its excitement, its discovery, with so much pride. You know, Solange went through journeys to get to where she reached to be able to create the album that she made. 
And it's the process in, in creating the album that intrigued Stephanie and furthered her thesis. It took Solange four years to make this album. This amazing piece of work that because of the time that she had, granted us the ability to experience music in a way that encapsulated on the variety of feelings that we can go through simply as black women, but largely as human beings. I mean, she went through heartbreak, uncertainty, depression, anger, identity, all of these layers that are very human. And through those four years, she was able to harness a lot of what she learned through the questions that she had, through the life that she lived, and she she made art with it. And the thesis of Stephanie's essay was to talk about what I basically mentioned, which is the luxury of time that Solange had to be able to do what she did. You know, Stephanie acknowledged the fact that it is a luxury, it is a privilege to have time to explore your emotions and the life that you lived in order to put it onto paper and to produce it into art that people can digest and and see themselves in. And how um, there are many of us now and too many of us then that did not have that privilege. She begins to juxtapose the ways in which time has killed so many of these women before they even got a chance to see their careers as storytellers live and breathe real thorough life. You know, they've made impacts, but imagine if those impacts weren't just five years. You know, imagine if those impacts weren't cut short because of things like cancer, depression, um, lack of support, sadness. She runs down a list of Black woman storytellers that are practically our predecessors, uh, ancestors to the art, who fit this bill, which is how I was able to fall upon this essay, because Kathleen Collins is one of the women that she references. It was 1982 when Kathleen Collins's first distributed feature film, Losing Ground, debuted, but then it was 1988 when Kathleen Collins passed away from breast cancer at the age of 46, which means that she only had six years to live in the triumph of being able to produce, direct, write, and see this feature film come to life. This feature film that didn't even really get the full recognition that it deserved at that time. You know, Losing Ground didn't get its appreciation until years later when her daughter Nina Collins teamed up with Milestone Pictures to restore the feature and then have a debut at the Lincoln Center in 2015. Kathleen did not get to hold the fruits of her labor and the recognition in her hands. Okay, it was even difficult for her to produce another piece of work afterwards, like the effort just to gain support drove her crazy. So she's dealing with the lack of support, the lack of funds to be able to create another piece of work, you know, affording the ability to continue to be the artist and the storyteller that she wanted to be. 
she's dealing with the lack of support on top of the fact that she was also dealing with her cancer, which she kept to herself up until a few weeks before she passed. So you have all of these things happening at once. You have the lack of support, you have this illness, you have the depression that comes from those things, and then you are sitting there wondering, when am I ever going to be able to do this again? It feels like a losing battle. I'm literally too tired to give myself to this. This thing that is simply me being able to express my imagination. And if we're being honest, in 1982, the ways in which Black women were afforded the ability to tell films as frivolously as they wanted to was not much afforded. On top of that, Kathleen Collins was making films about Black people and Black life that did not fit the status quo to what people assumed blackness only looked like. And because of that, people didn't know what to do with her. There was something so alienating about that. That is hard. That's, that's, that's heavy. It's Stephanie's piece. She paraphrases Kathleen, and um, I'll read it here. She says, before her own death, she stated that it was fear that caused talented creative women to fall into a self-destructive illness she termed as psychic disconnections. This fear was rooted in women feeling their creative power but not being able to acknowledge and manifest it. And then you have a predecessor, an ancestor to the art, to Kathleen Collins. You have Lorraine Hansberry, one of the most, if not the best, playwright that our age would ever know that would write stories about black life in a truth that held up a mirror so clear you'd be afraid of it. A Raisin in the Sun debuted in 1959 and then in 1965 Lorraine Hansberry passed away at the age of 34 from pancreatic cancer. There is even a quote that Stephanie Fields pulls from something that James Baldwin, who was a very, very dear friend to Lorraine, that he theorizes when it comes to her art and her illness. He says, and I quote, Perhaps it is just as well, after all, that she did not live to see with the outward eye what she saw so clearly with the inward one. And it is not far-fetched at all to suspect that what she saw contributed to the strain which killed her. For the effort to which Lorraine was dedicated is more than enough to kill a man. James is talking about the ways in which Lorraine Hansberry's mind and her imagination was just too great for the year in which she came out with what she came out with, the time period, for them to actually nurture that gift properly. You know, the ability to really appreciate it for what it is. And that lack of appreciation, that inability to have her work seen for the genius that it is, not just with A Raisin in the Sun, but anything that she could have come out with afterwards, that, that lack of, of, of freedom, that misplacement. You know, she was someone who, just like Kathleen, was making 
stories about black life that people either didn't want to see or didn't think needed to be told. So what does that do to you? On top of that, she's a civil rights activist. On top of that, she was dealing with her sexual identity as a lesbian. You know, on top of all of those things, you have this illness. You have this career that has every opportunity to blossom in in ways unimaginable, but is stifled because you're too brilliant. That is alienating, suffocating. The, the lack of ability to express yourself and all of these things that are festering inside of you, it is enough to kill. Stephanie's essay goes on to bring it back to Solange and that not only is being a black woman this, this thing that we're supposed to feel burdened by, when in reality it is such a blessing but it's also the mobility and being able to express yourself and the ways in which the world stifles you from doing that. And then eventually, when the world continues to stifle you and as you continue to push and you push and you push and you realize that you're actually getting extremely tired, the self-doubt kicks in. And the self-doubt isn't, it isn't for naught. It comes from these institutions that are dedicated in oppressing you. That's why the fight is so strong, and that's why the battle is extremely difficult. Because you're fighting up against institutions that were built to do this. So, what happens when you're tired? When you're so tired? What happens when you strain your body so much just to express yourself, something that should be so natural, something that should feel so effortless, something that should be so supported? When all of that is happening to you and you have so much to say, but you just feel so stifled to say it, what does that do to you? And if it doesn't kill you because your body has has worn down, it kills your spirit and kills your heart and kills your determination because you will ask yourself, what is the point? What is the point? It shouldn't be a privilege for us to feel safe within our bodies and within communities in order to feel safe enough to exert all of the the energy the feelings the thoughts all of these things it it shouldn't be a privilege to be able to express ourselves it just shouldn't be we have every right to dream and to imagine and to play with that imagination without always considering how we will be hurt how we will be abused how we will be neglected how we have to fight just to survive and that that survival is the simple act of expression you know i definitely i think about women like kathleen like lorraine like audrey lord like tony Cade bambara like 
these amazing storytellers whose lives were cut short. Young black women with a plethora of adventures and journeys that they decided to let us in on, reflections that they decided to have. I think about them, but then I think about the woman that we don't even know, that didn't have the opportunity to see their name written across print, who probably didn't even learn the skill of reading and writing, but my God can spin tales around you. The ones that had to go to the grave very early without us even being able to experience the genius of their minds that don't even know that their ability to tell stories the way that they can is genius, right? And you know, there's something else that I think about too. I think about the resources that they lacked then. God, I remember one time I was watching Losing Ground and I was talking to another filmmaker friend of mine and I was telling her like, I can't even imagine how expensive and tedious it was to shoot on film, okay? To shoot, to edit on film. You know, we live in the YouTube age. We live in the DSLR age. You know, we live in the iPhone age where there are literally so many tools afforded to us to tell our stories that our predecessors, our ancestors to the arts did not have. You know, even apart from from equipment, when you think about film programs, if you wanted to get a degree in film, you definitely can. There are a lot more universities that are open with the ability to get a degree in those things. Now, granted, film school is not perfect. That'll be <laughs> an episode all on its own, but you know, there are still programs out there that can teach you what it is that you need to be taught to learn what it is that you need to learn. You know, if you didn't want to go to school, you can go to a program that they have at media arts centers. There are plenty. There are fellowships that you can you can gain, grants. Girl, you could even go on YouTube and learn exactly what it is that you need to do to become a filmmaker or an author or a producer or this or that. Like resources literally falling out of the ass. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, and these are the things that we're afforded. These are the amazing opportunities that we have that they did not. You know, imagine having to wait to be published what it took to get your manuscript seen and created, to have your books on shelves, how long of a process that was. Can you imagine? Nowadays, we can literally create ebooks and send them to people. Newsletters, blogs, like, I mean, the sky is the limit as of right now. It is a privilege, and that doesn't have to be a good thing or a bad thing. It just is a thing. You know, they created so we would have the ability to be here. 
So it's it's real when when we have all these resources, but so much fear to use them. We create time to sit with our idea, to just let it fester and and take up space in our head because we are afraid to bring them to life. We have created the time to be afraid of our gifts. And that fear comes from perfection, comes from this other side of the coin where if we aren't creating the best piece of work, then when will we ever be allowed to do that again? I remember uh, Avery DuVernay had said one time, I, I don't remember the quote word for word, so I'm paraphrasing here, but I remember her talking about uh, the fear of Hollywood opening up their doors to her and having to make sure that what she produced was so good because there's that fear where if she fucks it up, then the opportunity for her and anyone else after is just gone. And I hate the fact that we think that way. I hate the fact that the institutions of storytelling, particularly film, have nurtured this idea. It's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate because of the fact that we have stories for days. And we shouldn't have to feel that we have one shot to play with those stories that if we bomb it, that we bomb it for everybody else. That, that, that can't be it. It also cannot be the thing that stifles us, that, that paralyzes us in this fear that we have to be extremely picky with the stories we tell because some are good enough and some aren't. Some are acceptable and some aren't. All of our stories have places. And it's up to us to decide where those places are. And we have so many women before us that have paved the way for us to feel free in deciding what those stories are and how we want to tell them. Then now that we have the opportunity, we literally should be going balls to the wall with it. The exhaustion isn't gone. It still exists. It still resides here. There is still so much pushback and abuse and neglect in our industries. There is very much a lack of protection that black women can feel in being able to use their voices to speak their truths and their imaginations. All of that is still real. But you know, now or never is so much more than just getting your foot in the door and has everything to do with deciding when you believe that your voice is worthy of being spoken. And that worthiness starts right now. It starts whenever you want it to. It is unfair to continue the work of the world of silencing your own voice. You can let everybody else try to keep you quiet, but you keeping yourself quiet, that's a whole nother level. That is dishonoring the God in you, point blank period. It's you telling yourself, you know what, maybe maybe my voice isn't worthy of being heard. And girl, you know that is a whole ass lie. <laughs> you know, I titled this episode, Expression is Our Birthright, because it is. Storytelling is literally in our blood. We live and breathe this shit. It is the most consistent, universal connection that we have to other humans. 
on this planet. It is story that holds on to memories. It is story that connects us to our family, our lineage, our culture. We have Kathleen Collins, Lorraine Hansberry, Minnie Ripperton, Audrey Lord, Tony Cade Bambara, Pat Parker, Tony Morrison, who lived a full life as a storyteller. My God. My God. Did she go running for the hills with this gift? If you're afraid to learn from the woman that didn't have as much time, learn from the woman that did. Right? This world will eat you alive. And I think the amazing thing about life and growth is discovering how much bite you have to bite back. I want to bite with my stories. I want to bite on film, in books, through this podcast. (laughs) I want to chomp. I am hungry. All right? (laughs) And so I am here dusting off this mic preparing my computer, writing down my notes, consulting other black women storytellers, getting this art together. I'm doing all of this because I've never been hungrier. My appetite was three to four years in the making. What stories are you holding on to out of fear that your voice isn't big enough to speak Your pockets are deep enough to earn the resources that you need to thrive in telling these stories. That time isn't afforded to you. That you you can wait a little longer with self-doubt pitching a tent in your head. Whatever it is, I promise you, there is beauty on the other side of expression. You deserve to feel it. And if you need a reminder, I guarantee you this podcast will be that for you every single week. In some way, shape, or form, I will be affirming the ability to tell your story. I promise you that. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for deciding to listen to this podcast. I am looking forward to delivering some amazing content, bringing amazing black women storytellers to the table so we can discuss story and i look forward to creating with you guys i really do and with that i bid you farewell till next time everyone you have a wonderful day